With that in mind, please open your Bible to Psalm 9 and 10. We're going to attack two psalms this morning because I believe they were originally one psalm and their messages are inextricably, inextricably linked together, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, because of the, the length of this. I'm going to read it as we go. So uh, the title of this sermon is Praise and Perplexity, Psalm 9 and 10, Praise and Perplexity. And it will be both praise and perplexity if I can get through these 38 verses uh, this morning. So I understand the, the perils of second hour involve lunch in which I am personally invested. So I am willing to do the work. But let's dive in. I know God has much to show us in Psalm 9 and 10. The question is, have you ever experienced the dissonance, the disconnect between God's Word and God's world? To say it another way, have you struggled with the discontinuity between God's promises and God's providence. In other words, you see what God says about Himself and His people and the wicked in the Bible, but you look around and you don't see it working out that way. If you haven't had that experience you don't understand the psalmist because King David had that exact experience. One of the ways that we know this is a common experience is because we believe. And I would say the more that we believe the Word of God, the more we trust the promises of God, the more we see the radical discontinuity in a fallen world from what God has promised us to what we receive. This is one of the predominant concerns of the Psalms because Psalm 1 opens with two paths that God has ordained, the path of the righteous, which according to the first Psalm is accompanied by divine blessing and favor, a path that leads to life and prosperity, and another path which is the path of destruction, the way of the sinner. His destiny is compared to the disposable husk of grain that that blows away in the wind. One is a path of value and blessing and divine favor. The other is a path of destruction and certain judgment by God Himself. But when we look around this world, we see the persecution of God's people throughout their history. When we look around this world, we see wicked people doing quite well for themselves, prospering even greater than the prosperity described in the Psalms that's supposed to be reserved for the righteous. But it isn't just the issue of the prosperity of the wicked, a common problem the psalmist confronts. But it's a particular concern that Psalm 9 and 8 have where the Word of God and the world of God seem to be in opposition to each other. In Psalm 9 and 10, the particular focus 
of the worshiper's concern has to do with a miscarriage of justice. Psalm 9 and 10 present a God of perfect justice, a God of perfect righteousness. And Psalm 9 praises this God and extols His justice and provides for us really a a crash course in this most important aspect of theology, of how we think about the justice of God and what it means to have a God who is perfectly just, who will never allow any sin to go unpunished, whose law is inviolable, whose world is is a platform for Him to demonstrate and display His total righteousness. And then... Psalm 9 turns to Psalm 10, and we have on display the abject wickedness and depravity of sinners. Considered internationally, by way of the nations, the world, the peoples in Psalm 9, and then considered individually in those who would seek individually to do God's people harm, on display in Psalm chapter 10. It really is a journey of trying to figure out how God's Word and how God's world, how God's promises and how God's providence, how God's character and our circumstances play out about this all-important concept of divine justice. And so we have a song, what I think is a single song of praise and perplexity on display before us. The heading of the song is in Psalm 9. All the songs in the first book of the Psalter, running through all the way 45 or so, uh, all these songs have headings, nearly all of them, except Psalm 10. That's one reason that most people understand these to be one psalm instead of two. And so the Davidic superscription on Psalm 9 that gives David credit for authorship, as well as the musical notation, choir director, and Muthlaben. Nobody knows what that means, uh, except Abner Chow probably, but nobody else knows what that means. And it's that little kind of opening that, that it reigns over both of these songs. That's not the only reason. I think these, and most people think these psalms are at least thematically connected, if not originally intended to be composed as one. The two psalms together take thematic encouragement from each other. We find problem and resolution, except the resolution starts in Psalm 9, and then the problem deepens in Psalm 10, bringing it to an ultimate resolution. The Psalms work together linguistically, sharing common language, some of the language unique only to these Psalms in the entire Old Testament. And so the heading, the languages, the thematic, but most significantly, this Psalm employs a poetic device that we understand somewhat in English, but is very predominant in Hebrew, and that is the concept of an acrostic. You know the acrostic? Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, or something like that. Lewis Carroll uh, made an English acrostic in one of his poems about Alice in Wonderland, A-L-I-C-E, and it's a 
It's a little lyric, and each letter represents the beginning of the line. Well, Hebrew poetry often employs an acrostic, but this acrostic is an alphabetic one, or an aleph-bet one in Hebrew. This acrostic goes through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, something you can find all over the book of Psalms, and not just restricted to the book of Psalms. There's probably a half a dozen Psalms that follow an acrostic pattern that each stanza starts with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You find it in other places in the Old Testament. Proverbs 31, the virtuous wisdom woman uh, on display. All of Proverbs 31 is set out in acrostic fashion, Uh, starting with the uh, first Hebrew letter and ending with the last. There's a section in Jeremiah that's poetic, that has that same uh, poetic device. Psalm 9 and 10 follow a course of alphabetic letters, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each line or verse beginning with the appropriate letter in sequence, sort of. Psalm 9 features 10 of 11 of the first letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Dalet is missing, that kind of the equivalent of our letter D. And Psalm 10 begins with the 12th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, with seven uh, remaining letter, letters going in sequence through the psalm. So what we have here is an acrostic poem, but it's a broken acrostic. And we don't know what acrostics were for beyond their poetic that being a poetic device, were they to aid memory, uh, perhaps the brokenness, and this is speculation of this alphabetic acrostic, is reflective of the poetry of this song, of the theme of this song. This is justice in a broken world. This is the confusion of the psalmist. And so an intentional skipping and setting aside of, of Hebrew letters, there's poetic devices within the acrostic that I'll show you as we move through. But all of that to say, what we have here is not two songs, but one song. One song committed to helping us praise God's immaculate justice even through the most difficult perplexities in this world where it seems like justice is the furthest thing from reality. And so we'll look at it in two parts. Chapter 9, Let's title chapter 9 in praise of God's justice. And chapter 10, the perplexity of God's justice. A journey to go on with King David to teach us how to worship and how to pray and how to think accurately about God's justice in a fallen world. Praise and perplexity. Let's start with chapter 9, verse 1. In praise of God's justice. Look at the aggressive and God-centered opening, verse 1. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David begins his song with, direct praise. This is in contrast to what we've seen in the book of Psalms so far. If you were to read from Psalm 1 to Psalm 9, you'd notice a distinct difference with this psalm for several reasons. 
One, this is the most direct worship to God, not talking about worshiping God, but actually talking to God. I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, is how it should be translated, with all my heart. I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. It's direct. It's God-centered. It's a prayer. It's a praise. It speaks to God. Second difference you would see moving through the the opening psalms that sets Psalm 9 apart is the reality of lament. Lament is a common theme in the psalms. It's an expression of agony. It's a song with tears. It's almost always beginning with a request, a supplication, The psalmist is in danger, and so he cries out to God. Psalm 7 is a good example. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or will tear my soul like a lion. Or Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. And though Psalm 9 does turn into a lament kind of a song, a song that has supplications and requests and tears. It begins with this determined commitment to praise God. And it's a great reminder at the start of our church service that that's why we come here. That has to be the predominant reason that we gather together. Yes, we are here to learn. This pulpit is a lectern, and these pews are a classroom in so many ways. We come to learn about our God, to marvel at His works and His character. But more than just that, this pulpit is not just a lectern, and these pews are not just a classroom. This is a sacred place where we come to ascribe worth, to worship to praise, to extol, to speak highly of God, to praise Him by song and by prayer. In preaching and in singing, we declare the glory of God. And that's where David begins. Listen to the verbs. Give thanks. Tell of your wonders. Be glad and exult in you. Sing praise to your name, O Most High. And it's from that determined commitment to praise that he begins to zero in on his theme. What is the theme of God's praise? Why is God so worthy of David's affection and attention and worship? Verse 3 and following, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you, speaking to God, have maintained my justice and my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. Now we find David's central theme of praise. He's not praising God generally. He's praising God's justice. We see this on display as David brings his enemies into focus in verse 3. And the one who protected David from the assault of his enemies, likely armies and nations up against his kingship, he sees the credit all going to God in verse 4. For you have maintained my justice 
and my cause, or my judgment and my cause. That word judgment means making a right decision. That word cause is a legal word. It was David's way of speaking of being vindicated as if in a court of law. See, God had set David's case in order. God had displayed His perfect judgment and justice. Really, it's an answer to this question. Does God punish sin? When theologians consider the issue of God's justice, they usually think of it as a subcategory of a larger aspect or or, uh, characteristic of God, His holiness. And so when you think about the attributes of God, we usually think about justice as a subcategory of God's holiness and God's righteousness. God's justice and righteousness come together. And that concept in the Old Testament has to do with conformity to a rule, conformity to a standard. God speaks of justice when it comes to His people needing to have right balances in their scales. In Leviticus 19.36 and Deuteronomy 32.4, these are normal commandments about making sure people aren't being swindled or cheated, that God is a God of truth, that righteousness is to do what is right, what is just, conformity to the standard that God sets. And you can dive deep into the concept of of divine justice, thinking about rectoral justice and distributive justice and redemptive justice, all on display in various places in the Old Testament, built into God's law that He gave to His people. But there is both remunerative aspects of His justice, and in other words, what the psalmist described for the righteous, that they'll be blessed of God, they'll be remunerated, those who do what's right will be blessed. And there are retributive aspects of God's justice, the infliction of penalty for those who do wrong. This is the perfect scales of God's justice. And that's what David has in mind when he says, you have maintained my judgment, the right decisions, and my cause. I've been vindicated before my enemies. And then switching in this beautiful poetry in perfect tenses to show that he's speaking of the past. David is telling of God's wondrous works back in verse 1, and now he's recounting those same works and speaking of how God has done that in the past, rebuking the nations. His enemies turned back, stumbled and perished before him. That's a historical perfect tense. Verse 5 and 6 is what some would call a prophetic perfect tense because he says, you have destroyed the wicked. I don't know if you've, you've been looking around lately, but the wicked are not destroyed. There's still some of them up in here, right? And so the destruction of the wicked is said prophetically. David speaks of it as if it's done and accomplished. And so switching back all verses 1 through 6 in first-person worship and praise of God, but thinking historically, recounting the the wonderful deeds of God. That's what he said in in verse 1, to tell of all your wonders. That's an important group of words in Hebrew, the wonders. We know it from Isaiah uh, chapter 9, the Messiah is a wonderful counselor. We know it from Psalm 119. God's Word is wonderful. 
It means to provoke wonder or to be wondered at. And that's the, that's the particular focus. David is wondering, provoking wonder, just marveling at the enthroned justice of God, His sovereign judgment. Verse 4, you've sat on the throne judging righteously. All David's causes have been vindicated. God's judgments have been set right, even thinking future tense. Verse 5 and 6 to display the destruction of the wicked as if it already happened. And that moves us further into this song of praise. Verses 7 and 8 serve as a center point. And verses 7 through 10 really are this incredible poetic section. If you're if you were following along with the acrostic, which we don't have time to do, but this is the vav section, the, the wav or vav section. Uh, this Hebrew letter marks every single verse, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And this is poetry within the poetry. You can see it in your English Bible somewhat when you look at verse 7 and you see the capitalized Lord standing for the covenant name of God, Yahweh, in verse 7. This stanza is framed with that word at the outset, and then the same name for you, O Yahweh, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 10, have not forsaken those who seek you. So verse 7 through 10 has Yahweh at the front, Yahweh at the back. It has Vav, 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 Vav as the starting letters in this poetry. And what he has on display here as the first and final word is Yahweh as the subject is seven distinct statements about God's justice. You can see them there. Verse 7, statement 1, Yahweh abides forever, meaning his justice is eternal. Statement 2, 7b, he has established his throne for judgment. This speaks of that that profound, eternal establishment of God's judgment, His perfect judgment. Statement three, He will judge the world in righteousness. This speaks of the universal nature of God's judgment. Uh, Statement four, verse eight, He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. This is the perfect, righteous judgment of God. Statement five in verse nine, Yahweh will also be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. This is God vindicating the cause of those who are the victims of the wicked. Not today's kind of victims. This is the kind of justice that is God's standard, not man's standard. Not the weird conceptions of justice that our society says that they hold so dear. This is not a human perspective. This is not a a human conception. This is a divine conception of justice that works with truth and truth alone as its guiding distinctives. The way that we understand God's judgment is on the basis of God's truth. And so when it says Yahweh will be a stronghold for the oppressed, it speaks not of some kind of generic concern for economic equalities. It's a concern for a violation of oppressed people. It's the enemies of verse 3 who stumbled and perished. It's the nations who go against God's people. This isn't some kind of communistic understanding of God's justice. This is justice that is divine. The greatest concern that God has is for the violation of His truth to be remedied. 
And that's what's on display in that verse 9. The Lord will be a stronghold, a refuge, a common image in the psalm. Psalm 46, He's a, a refuge and strength of every present help in danger. God's refuge-like nature is for His people who have been oppressed, victimized, vilified, persecuted, and martyred by those who are against God and therefore against His people. And God serves them as a refuge, a castle, a stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 10 gives us the sixth statement. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. And we start to see that David is inviting others to participate in this praise of divine justice because the way that you get on God's side is by trusting Him. And by final statement, verse 10, for you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. You see, to trust in Yahweh and to seek Yahweh was always God's way of being right with Yahweh. To be on the side of Yahweh was often to be those who were most oppressed. But David sees this as a place of refuge and as a cause for worship. And he extends an invitation to know the knowable God. And Yahweh's justice is the center point of this song of praise. An illustration of this could be found in the book of First Kings. It's worth flipping over there. We got nothing but time. And this is a well-known one. I don't want to belabor it, but go to First Kings chapter three, and I'll I'll just regular labor it. Everybody knows this story because this story so beautifully illustrates God's judgments, God's righteousness being vindicated by God's wisdom. David's son Solomon was endowed with divine wisdom. And the famous story of that starts in 1 Kings 3.16. Two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. And then the other woman said, no, For the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. And thus they spoke before the king. Solomon, in this most memorable and riveting and tragic scene, displays divine wisdom. In our culture, we would need a DNA test, get some hair, send it to the lab, go on trial, foster care, 12 months, 24, 12 months, 48 months later, we'd have it figured out. Solomon's faster than a DNA test because he has the wisdom of God. Verse 25, the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. 
And the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child. By no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. This is divine justice. Divine justice tells truth from error. A a falsehood is discerned in divine justice from what is right. Scales are balanced. Liars are punished. The guiltless are set free. That's what divine justice looks like. Not some Marxist conception of equality, but God's Word and standard being on full display. That's divine justice. And it made Solomon's wisdom famous because it was so godly and so right and righteous. And it didn't stop at the borders of Israel. This story traveled the world because Solomon's wisdom traveled the world. In the 13th century, a Chinese author named Li Quan Fu, which is exactly how you pronounce it, <laughs> tells a story called The Circles of Chalk. And it's a, it's a total borrow from the, the Hebrew story. The, the ruler draws a circle of chalk and the two contested mothers are to take the child by the legs and by the arms, and they're to pull, and whoever gets the child is the mother. And the true mother, not wanting to put any hurt on the child, lets go of the child. And the wise ruler rightfully gives the mother her child. These stories resonate throughout humanity because people are made by God. This world is set up by God. And all of us long for justice and fairness and equity. It's one of the first concepts we articulate as children, isn't it? What's your kids say? That's not fair. Right? He got ice cream, I don't have ice cream. That's not fair. And they're conception of equity is imperfect, but they understand there is such a thing as justice, as equity, as fairness, as right and wrong. And this is bigger than one gets ice cream and one does not. This is a concept that goes global, and it goes global in this song. Verse 11, sing praises to Yahweh who dwells in Zion. Zion is local. Mount Zion is is God's headquarters. It, It stands for the place where God is enthroned and worshipped and where His judgments come from. Sing praises to Yahweh who dwells in Zion, but God's justice is not restricted to God's people. It goes across all of His creation, which is why verse 11 says, declare among the peoples His deeds. That word peoples there is accompanied by the word nations in verse 5 and verse 15 and verse 17 and verse 19 and verse 20. 
add to it in verse 8 the word world and the word people. And you have a psalm that has a global concern for the just action of Yahweh in all the earth. The God of all the earth will do what is right. He will instruct the people in justice. He will bring about perfect judgment. He will render everything according to His plan. Not one malfeasance, not one miscarriage of justice, not one violation of His law will be swept under the divine rug. He sees all of it, verse 12. He who requires blood remembers them. Better translated as He sees every bloodshed. He who requires an accounting of every drop of blood. I mean, that that ministers when you have headlines or worse than headlines, your own personal stories of someone who was killed and the murderer was never found. Well, not never. Every criminal will be brought to perfect justice. Every murderer will be exposed No matter how many months or years or decades they hide their dark secret, they wash their hands of innocent blood, God will bring them to equity. Every single drop of blood will be accounted for in God's worlds. And every single tear that falls, verse 12, He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. In all the world, in all of human history, every slight, every evil thought, every failure to worship God as we ought, every crime, every genocide, every act of infanticide, every single wicked violation of God's perfect order will be dealt with by the God of perfect justice. And David praises God for that. He sees in it righteousness that everything will be set right and is being set right. And so he continues to sing and praise. And now he includes his request, a cry for grace in verse 13 and 14. The praise becomes a prayer. He says, be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me, who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises. That same language of verse 1, of telling the wonderful works of God, he now extends to the, the edges of the world and to the people of God and the gates of daughter Zion, that I may rejoice in your salvation. This petition goes global. Martin Luther King famously said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He didn't make that up. David is saying it here. He's saying you cannot confine God's justice to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the boundaries of His covenant people Israel. You cannot delineate between God's justice in the church and God's justice in the world. God will set everything right because every single creature will answer to Him. Every single creature. And so the petition and praise intermingle in praise of God's justice in verses 13 through 20. Verses 13 and 14, the cry for justice, the cry for grace in the midst of divine justice brings his problem into focus. 
Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. The enemies who are said to be vanquished in verse 3 and verse 5 are still actively afflicting David, and so he turns to God in prayer, the God of perfect justice. And then in verses 15 through 20, his petition becomes a a theological lesson, as so often the psalmist wisely does. His prayers aren't just begging and beseeching. They have doctrine and content. This is a perfect example of this. Verse 15 through 20, his petition includes the recalling, the telling of three certainties he knows about God's justice. Three things he's certain of. Number one, verse 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they've made, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. This is a common concept in the Psalms. I like to call it, how you like them apples. It's just the nations dug a pit to trap God's people, and the nations fell into their pit. Oops. That's the idea. And so the first certainty about God's justice on display in verse 15 and 16 is that sin is going to come back at you. It always does. You call this the boomerang effect. The year was 1990. The place was Albuquerque, New Mexico, Grant Middle School Eagles. I'm in woodshop class, and a number of us decided to make boomerangs. And we crafted with perfect mathematic parabolas. Boomerang. I don't even know what a parabola is. I don't think that's even the right word. But I crafted this boomerang out of wood. We polished it and sanded it and went outside and we threw our boomerangs picturing that incredible, beautiful, perfect circle back to catch it. I don't think you're supposed to catch it, but that's how we pictured it. And we threw those boomerangs and wham, they went over the fence. (laughs) And so we climbed the fence, we got our boomerangs and we threw them again. Never to be seen again. (laughs) That's not how sin works. Sin is going to get you. It's going to come back at you every time. The streets are full of testimonies of sinners who are receiving some amount of the natural consequences of their sin. But the boomerang effect of sin, the first certainty of God's justice displayed in verse 15, isn't just that sin will come back at you. Look at what verse 16 says. It's not a natural principle. It's not just the gravity of the situation. It's that God is behind it, verse 16. Yahweh has made Himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of His own hands. The wicked is snared. So yes, it's built into God's world that Sin has automatic consequences, but God sees to it that the boomerang effect of sin will never fail. Yahweh will see to it. So certainty one, sin will come back at you. Certainty two, on display in verse 17, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Certainty two is that eternity is before you. And this is a reminder to every mortal in this room 
that you will stand before God. And unless you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, fully forgiven, the justice of God carried through, through the perfect payment of Christ's penalty, then you will face God's judgment. As described in Revelation 20, as God judges the devil and judges the nations and judges the people, we will all stand before the judgment of God. And unless you belong to Christ, you don't stand a chance. It's a reminder that eternity is before us. The wicked will return to Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for grave or afterlife or death. And it's interesting to see that the wicked return there. In other words, that's their natural habitat. They live by death. They die by death. They return to death. But eternity is before them, and death is not the end. The hope of the afflicted will not perish forever, verse 18. The needy will not always be forgotten because God is eternal. His justice is eternal. So if sin comes back at you, verse 15, eternity is before you, verse 17, God will be against you, verse 19. David prays, arise, O Yahweh. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Let them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. The petition and praise bring into focus God's perfect justice. But there's a whole nother psalm here. But it's easy to treat it quickly because its message is so simple and it's necessary to see that David doesn't end there because that's not what the world is like. The world is not like every wicked person is getting hit with the boomerang of their sin. At least it doesn't look like that to us. Though it doesn't look like God's justice is being carried out perfectly by human judges. Bad guys are getting away with all kinds of stuff. It doesn't look like that in this world. And so there is a significant, abrupt shift when David begins to sing the next part of his song. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? And so the second heading over Psalm 10 is the perplexity of God's justice. Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David says God seems inactive. That God seems absent from the scene. That God's justice, which is supposedly theologically and doctrinally perfect, is missing from David's lived out experience. And what's beautiful about this complaint is that it's not some college student waxing philosophically. Now, if God were to inflict upon... Nope. Instead, look how he says it, verse 1. Why do you stand far off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It's commendable the way he he complains because it's a prayer of faith. He takes his problem to God. And then David launches into a description of the wicked that I'll read to you in whole, starting in verse 2. In pride, this is a a biographical sketch. So 
Verse 1, a perplexing cry. Verse 2 through 11, a perplexing biography. Verse 2, in pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in the hiding places, a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. What a contrast. What a contrast is chapter 10 from chapter 9. I learned this phrase just a couple days ago. It's called meteorological fall. And I said, hey, Alexa, what's meteorological fall? And is the government listening to this? Meteorological fall isn't like the equinox kind of fall, like actual fall. We don't, we don't have any of them in California. But we do have meteorological fall. It's the experience of fall. Last week at church, it was 113 degrees. This week, yesterday, was so pleasant and cold, SoCal cold. People yesterday were getting on sweaters, pumpkin spice lattes. <laughs> not real fall, meteorological fall. It's that sudden shift that we all experience in weather at times, but in life, in the seasons of life, there's these sudden abrupt changes. And that's what's happening because David knows what he believes is true, but his experiences are telling him otherwise, especially as it pertains to God's justice. If God is a God of perfect justice, then why is the wicked characterized by, well, namely pride? You could sum it all up with pride. One commentator named Phillips He alliterates everything. Look what he does with chapter 10. He describes the wicked man, verse 1, as seeming blessing. Verse 2 is sinful behavior. Verse 3 is scornful boasts. Verse 4 is stubborn bias. Verse 5 is spiritual blindness. Verse 6 is swelling bigotry. Verse 7 is spoken blasphemies. Verse 8 through 10 is secret brutalities. And the images in 10 through 11 are that of a, a thief and then a lion, and then a fisherman or a hunter trapping their prey. And this is all the wicked on display. And the the question is, is why is the wicked getting so much ink? Why do they get so much attention in this song? So much screen time on this show. Why is the wicked in such technicolor display? Why is God allowing this display, this portrait of the wicked to dominate this song? Derek Kidner explains it this way. Why is there so much time and space? Why so much press given to the wicked? He says that here in this psalm, God is portrayed or appears to be far off, verses 1 and 2. The tyrant looks like they're doing quite well, verses 3 through 11. And he says this, it is a function of the psalms 
to touch the nerve of this problem and keep its pain alive against the comfort of our familiarity with a corrupt world. Why does He spill so much ink on the wicked? To remind us this is the world we live in. And it shouldn't be hard for redeemed people to remember that this is the world we're rescued from. That this portrait of sinful behavior and scornful boasting and stubborn bias and spiritual blindness and swelling bigotry and spoken blasphemies and secret brutalities and, and pride, pride, pride is actually a biography of every single one of us. We don't point at a wicked world without remembering 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. All of us sinners by nature and by choice. All of us blasphemers if it wasn't for the intervention of God's miraculous grace in showing us the way of Christ. To take Him by faith. To know His cross work to believe and trust Him, to turn from our sins and receive the free gift of salvation. That's what transforms a sinner to a saint. And David gives so much ink to this to remind us this is the world we live in and this is the world we've been redeemed from. And so once again, his perplexing biography turns to a perplexing prayer, a prayer in perplexity. Verse 12, Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it. You have beheld mischief and vexation to take it to your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm, a symbol of their power of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. After the self-assurance and pride of the wicked, the lion-like and hunter-like murderous plans of the wicked, the irreverence and blatant blasphemy of the wicked put before us in technicolor, he prays and pleads to God and asks for God's help. And reminds us that even in our most perplexing dilemmas at the absence of God's justice in a fallen world, we can still seek His help. I think sometimes we forget where we are. Honestly. We look at this wicked world and we just don't remember where we are. Dodger baseball. Carl Erskine. Carl Erskine. He was called Oisk. He played from 48 to 59. I wasn't born yet. The college students think I was. I'll let Bob Hurt tell the story. Carl Erskine would become known for his big overhand curve during his playing career. His father, Matt, would first teach him how to throw one. The elder's curve was the old-fashioned barnyard variety, different from the one Oisk employed while pitching in the National League. His father threw his sidearm, which would cause it to break flat or with no break at all, just sideways. Sensing the need to improve upon his son's breaking ball, Matt Erskine purchased a book on pitching. Carl recalled one day in the family's living room with his father, the elder Erskine held the book in his left hand and the ball in his right 
while following the instructions, he accidentally released the ball, sending it across the room, crashing through the glass of his mother's cupboard, cupboard, destroying a bunch of her dishes. Later, his father would admit that it was the best break he ever got on a ball. Curveballs in the kitchen, it's easy to forget where you are. And where are we? Here we're praying for God's perfect justice. We are in a fallen world. We are in the stream of redemptive history. We are on this side of Eden and on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we forget where we are because we're so frustrated by sinners sinning in sinful ways. We're so frustrated when we see the world around us, the government under the sway of Satan, the cultural rot, the municipal malfeasance, the decay of seemingly everything in our society. And we have to remember, we're east of Eden. We're in a fallen world. But God is still on His throne. That's where we are. And so after all the biography of the wicked and the plea from perplexity, he concludes with praise. He goes back to where he started, verse 16. The Lord, Yahweh, is King forever and ever. Nations have perished from His land. O Yahweh, You have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. And that will lead us all the way to the end of the Bible when God throws the devil in the lake of fire. When He judges every single person with perfect righteousness. And you and I would be under that same judgment were it not the free gift of God's grace available at the cross. You see, it's on the cross that we find that God doesn't overlook anything. But because of Jesus' perfect life and perfect righteousness and death on the cross, substitutionary in our place, He died for us the the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And so you have God on His throne then and now. God on His throne accomplishing all His saving purposes through the perfect mediation and death of Jesus Christ in our place that by faith we could take hold of Jesus and trust Him that no matter what we've done, we can be forgiven by the God of perfect justice, who will vindicate His people, who will deal with every single persecutor. I close with the quote from Thomas Brooks, prolific Puritan author, was a sea chaplain, and then like all the other Puritans, fell victim to the act of uniformity, kicked out of pulpits, persecuted, some even killed. He said this, there's a time when God will make inquisition for innocent blood. 
The Hebrew word signifies not barely to seek, to search, but to seek, search, and inquire with all diligence and care imaginable. Oh, there is a time coming when the Lord will make a very diligent and careful search and inquiry after all the innocent blood of His afflicted and persecuted people, which persecutors and tyrants have spilt as water upon the ground. And woe to the persecutors when God shall make a more strict, critical, and careful inquiry after the blood of His people than ever was made, where all things are carried with the time coming, when God will inquire who silenced and suspended such and such ministers, who stopped the mouths of such and such, and who imprisoned, confined, and banished such and such, who were once burning and shining lights, who are willing to spend and be spent that sinners might be saved and that Christ might be glorified. There is a time when the Lord will make a very narrow inquiry into all the actions and practices of ecclesiastical courts, high commissions, human governments, committees, enemies, deal with persecutors as they have dealt with His people. God will set everything right. And the proof of it is the cross of Christ. Because if you and I could be set right by His grace, then how much more will God be able to set everything right by His perfect justice? Father, thank You for Your character and nature. We praise your name and we wonder at your justice. We know that if we live in sin, we live at odds with you. So I pray for any here who do not know you savingly, who are yet to become a Christian, yet to trust Christ by faith. Would you work in their hearts even now and convict them and convince them of their impending doom if they were to face you as judge? God, will you draw them to yourself by your grace and because of the beauty of Christ and his cross work on our behalf that they might take hold of the only Savior and find forgiveness and peace and reconciliation and a longing for your world to be set right someday. Friend, if that's you, not a Christian here today, to my right, to your left, under the exit sign, those double doors, there's people who'd love to pray with you and lead you to Christ. Father, our life is a, a long series of seasons and conflicts and difficulties and joys and pains and privileges. Help us never forget that our destiny has been reversed because of the grace that you have shown us at the cross. Thank you that you uphold your justice by pouring out your wrath on your Son. That you rescue sinners, undeserving sinners, and make us your children, make us your friends. Help us to follow you faithfully and to trust in your justice even when we don't see it in this fallen world. May your kingdom come in Jesus' name. Amen.